Hi, my name is Ezzy. I'm an alcoholic. Today, um, I'm up in Guerneville because I forgot that I was doing this and I uh, would have loved to call you and cancel, but we don't do that. I want to say welcome to the newcomers. I don't, let me see, I don't see them, but um, welcome. If you're coming back because you relapsed, welcome back. If you um, are here by accident, court card, whatever, it's a big misunderstanding, welcome. And uh, thanks, Laura, for asking me to speak because it's always an honor and a privilege to speak in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to go through this really quickly because I only have like 10 minutes. And so um, I was trying to think of what to say. And I'm not one of those like readings kind of person. So I'm just going to like jump in a few sentences and tell you what it was like. And then I'll just say what it's like now. Uh, local law enforcement officials on Friday said, <laughs> and that's coming from like the front page of a newspaper a long time ago. Um, it says, uh, blah, 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 against an AWOL, an AWOL, which is absence without leave from the military, service woman who threatened to kill, blah, 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 and return to the Army. Any actions against Sergeant Blanca E. Medina, who engaged deputies in a three-hour, you get the gist of it. Um, that's what it was like. So what happened was, <laughs> I'd love to tell you that that just happened once or twice, um, but that's pretty much what it was like every time I would pick up a drink. I never knew where it was going to end. I never knew what was going to happen. And even knowing so, I would pick it up and just kind of brace myself for what might happen and just hope for the best. Because the truth is, I, I couldn't trust myself. You definitely couldn't trust me, but I couldn't trust me. I would lie to myself. I'd say, this time's going to be different. I'm only going to drink wine. I'm only going to drink champagne. It's going to be great. Um, I'm not going to end up, you know, in jail, blah, 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 and somebody's house I don't know, and all those things. But but that's what happened every single time, almost. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's those few, like, dinners that you have that kind of trick you into thinking, like, hey, I got this. You got with your friends, happy hour, whatever, and you go home at eight or nine, and it seems like it's going to work out. You got this now. Game's totally different, right? You went to work the next day. You didn't lose the job or the partner. But then maybe fifth or sixth time, it gets you. And that's what happens uh, for me. So what happened was I ended up in one of those three places. Um, it was uh, incarceration. I was incarcerated about 13 times. And the last time I met a lady from AA, she brought the meeting in and that got the ball rolling. You know, now I had been AA before, you know, throughout my life, but this time I was a captive audience, literally. I was so interested in what she had to say. I was so interested about this life that she had. And yet she came from the same place that, you know, I was at that moment. Um, so I begged my, my um, probation officer to get me into a rehab and I got in there. It was a six month program. And I stayed for about eight. And it's funny when you go into rehab, you don't want to, you don't want to be there, right? You're like, oh, this place sucks. You know, all these rules, they talk to me like I'm a five-year-old, blah, blah, blah. And then the day comes, you're going to graduate. You're like, do I have to go? I mean, <laughs> like, is that it? Like, you're just going to throw me onto the street, you know? And because uh, you get so comfortable and it's so nice to be taken care of and be around your people. But I went and I moved on from there and so on and so on. You, you start building your life. You start rebuilding. Um, I got a sponsor. I went to meetings. I did everything they told me and it worked. It totally worked. And then I stopped doing what they told me. I stopped going to meetings. How many times, if I had a dime for every time I heard a story, a relapse story start with, and then I stopped going to meetings, <laughs> right? That's where it goes bad. 
you know, I, I have to keep going to meetings. I have to keep uh, in touch with people. And it's funny because like, I used to think that you were a glum lot. Like they say, you know, you were boring. AA people, ugh, you know, they don't drink. It's going to be so boring. I think, I think people who drink are boring now. I go out with my friends who drink and I'm like, I'm counting the minutes to leave. I'm just there like to do that birthday party that, you know, um, I don't want to be there with people who drink. Watching people get loaded is fucking boring. And I'm watching my mouth because my son is in the bathtub and, uh, you know, a gift of sobriety. I'm going through this really quickly, but um, basically, you know, I fell on my ass like a hundred times and you know, the last time was uh, three and a half years ago. I found a, a meeting called Late Show through the COVID, you know, the quarantine when we were locked up. Not that kind of locked up, <laughs> but just regular. Um, I I couldn't go to any meetings. And so I went to meetings online. And I don't know why, but for some reason, that stupid meeting and everybody and it just, it just, it, they got me, you know, like that was what I was looking for. They weren't squares. They were funny. They were weird. They were like kooky. And I just, I found my people and I loved it. And I kept going every night. And it wasn't like a chore. Like before my, my sponsor would say, you have to go to five meetings, five, you know, every week. And I would just dread it. I would go to one and then I'd lie about it. I'd say, no, I went to like three or four, <laughs> you know, but now it's funny. Cause now I lie about how many times I go to late show. I'll say, Oh no, I didn't go last night. Oh yeah. I go to that meeting like three or four times. I'll be bullshit. I go every single night, <laughs> you know? And sometimes I stay up for random too. And, uh, and you know, like when I was drinking, you couldn't come between my, me and my drink, like nothing. Like I would, I would fight you. I would take you down, try to take my, you know, favors away or, or my drinks. I would get so mad. And now it's like, nothing comes between me and the, my meetings. You know, I will go, I don't care if I'm outside my car, you know, on my phone, if my kids are in my house and I mean, I'll put on my earbuds, nothing comes between me. You'd have to fight me to get me to stop coming to meetings because it's saving my life. Um, it did save my life. And I, I just, I, I, I feel so sad for people who never give this a chance. Like my dad's an alcoholic and he's never going to try this. He's 74 years old. He's drinking himself to death. And he's never tried it. He's too proud. He's too macho. He's too Mexican. I don't know. I don't know what the problem is. He's brilliant. Maybe that's the problem. But it breaks my heart. He never had a chance, you know. So if you're here, you're lucky. Um, give it a try. You know, like I used to think, I just, my life is over. Like, I'm always going to be this. I'm never going to be able to quit. I might as well just off myself. And then my friend said, well, why don't you go to rehab first? You know, and if that doesn't work, then you can off yourself. But if you off yourself, you can't go to rehab. You can't do it backwards, Ezzy. You know, like I'm a five-year-old and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. All right, cool. Okay. I'll try it. You know, I'll do it. And uh, it works. If you do everything that they say, it really does work. I don't know why I'm beating myself up against the wall. You know, I'm beating my head against the wall for 30 years, trying to think of like a way to, to, to beat this disease. You're doing the same thing. I see you. Thank you. And you're doing the same thing like somewhere else in another part of the world. And it doesn't work. Like we're both like, ah, why, why? And then we come together and we have this meeting and we talk about it, about our experience. And suddenly, you know, it's like we're motivated to, to stop. And we see somebody else who's a little bit further ahead 
and that's inspiring. And then we work the steps and it's like, we get rid of the shame and the embarrassment and the loneliness and we're happy. You know, we go to work without the drink. You're just, you take off, you know, you just soar. And in this room, I've seen some of the most brilliant, most inspiring, most funny, most just, I mean, incredible people, just in, alcoholics are incredible. I, I'm so glad that I know each and every one of you, like you're just, you amaze me, you know, because I know you've been, th I know your stories and I know what you've been through. And it's like, I don't know how you got through it, you know, but, but you're here and I'm so glad that we were broken and, and like now we're healing as opposed to never being broken at all, because I can't stand normies. Like they're just, they don't get it. You know, they don't get, I mean, I'm, I'm being, you know, funny, but they really don't. Um, I just think, you know, I, I'm a lesbian and, and I don't, I never used to have like a lot of close male friends, but here I see some of the most sensitive, most honest, like the best men I've ever, you know, known. And uh, it's just changed my mind about so many stereotypes and judgment that I used to have. So I know I didn't talk about a lot about the steps, but they are important. It's just that I'm still on my four steps. So I'm struggling, you know, and, you know, you don't have to do this perfectly. You just have to try, just do it to the best of your ability and you know, one day at a time, get through it. I think that's, that's, that's probably it, huh? It's good enough. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Matt and I'm an alcoholic. Um, and my sobriety date is February 14th, 2006. Um, I, I'm not going to spend too much time if I can on, on the drinking. Cause when I showed up here on Valentine's day, 17 years ago, I, I didn't really think I was an alcoholic. I just had a problem with drinking and, and, my first memory of childhood, my, I have two brothers, uh, I'll say this, and, and both of them are older. One got sober before me, one got uh, sober after me. And we're all sober, totally normal family, three sober children in one family. Um, and so I, I, I was reminded that my first memory as, as a child was, was, was drinking. Uh, we, there was these rip stop where you'd pull these like, um, like tinfoil tops, rip stop tabs across the top and we'd, we'd steal our dad's beer and drink it. And I, that's my first memory I have of childhood and trying to walk through a doorway and hitting the door and not understanding why, because I was drunk. Um, <laughs> thank you, James. <laughs> and by the way, it, it's like, it's a real honor and a pleasure to speak here and see so many familiar faces because this is a disease that 17 years ago had me beat beyond. And I'm a, I'm a tough cat. I've done a lot of cool things and crazy things that required willpower and discipline, but nothing has kicked my ass in the way that alcohol has, specifically the alcoholism. And so um, long story short, uh, I, I would say some of my behaviors from childhood, like I remember some of my earliest memories were abusing sugar. It, it, it's, it sounds, it sounds crazy. And apparently that's uh, kind of an indicator uh, of a predilection for alcoholism, but th there was just behaviors where like, when I was a kid, I just wanted more. I mean, if I got one thing, I'd want more. If I, if I didn't get any, I'd want one. And it just, it was this constant state of more. And so I'll just, I'll just say as I got older, I think my first real drunk was when I was like nine years old, hanging out with some kids in the neighborhood, all much older. And I just remember feeling like I fit in. It wasn't a big deal. I didn't like the taste, um, but whatever. Uh, as I got older, you know, I, I found out because I was a small kid, I was really afraid. Uh, and, I, and I was just constantly terrified. And when I was about 15 years old, uh, my brother came home from the Ranger Battalions and he you know, he's in this amazing military uniform. And at that time, I believe he was a combat veteran from the first Gulf War. And he just struck me as fearless. And he just seemed to have total control of everything in his life. 
everything I wanted in my life. And he was like six months shy of going to rehab. And so the, the punchline on that is kind of funny because he was totally full of fear. He was totally out of control with his life. But to me, that's what it represented. And so that's kind of what I wanted. I, I tried not to, my mother died when I was 14. She had been very sick for a long time and I watched her die. And that was a huge impact on me and, and my family. And it changed the dynamics. And I'm, I'm trying not to go into too much depth of my father. He did the best he could. Uh, he had three boys. One had just joined the army and uh, the other two were still at home and his wife had been sick for many years and he, and he died. And I don't know, we don't diagnose other people. Um, I really, you know, I don't know if my dad's one of us. If he is, I really hope he makes the room. I really do because I would not wish the alcoholic hell that would come later in my life on anybody, not on anybody. And so my dad told me, you know, it's time for me to get a career and get out of his house. And so he told me get out of the house when you're 18 and don't come back. I, I joined the military when I was 17. I wanted to, I was really, and I, all this is a lot of this is with hindsight. I would tell you different reasons when I was 17, but at that time in my life, deep down, I was afraid and I wanted some credentials and I wanted some recognition. I wanted some military medals and some, some military medals. And I'm not going to go into any specifics, uh, but I wanted some medals that would give me kind of some, some credibility where nobody would ever mess with me again. And, and I, and I knew that required a lot of sacrifice. I spent several years in the military. I got what I wanted. I got to be around some very amazing people. It's the greatest honor I've had in my life is to stand next to these men. I went to an elite training. I ended up getting injured. Um, I ended up spending a year in the hospital and I was medically discharged before my 21st birthday. Uh, and I wouldn't know it for a long time, but the extent I I'd worked in some really, um, cool things. I had a top secret SCI clearance. My primary rating was intelligence and I got to work on some really high speed shit and the elite training I got to attend. I injured my body really badly. And, and, and that's all I'm going to say about that. There's a huge culture of drinking in the military. Um, I remember getting, you know, when I, again, when I got here, I just thought I had a little drinking problem. And, um, and it turns out when I look back, I had three alcohol-related incidents in my first three years in the service. That's not normal. So in my 20s, I kept looking for these external solutions. So I was now out of the military. I was a, I was a disabled veteran. And I, I thought money was going to make me happy. So I, I got some, some successful careers and started building business. And I made a lot of money. And I mean a lot. I think I made nearly a million dollars in my first business in the first year. But no matter how much women, uh, shopping, things, success... Like I just needed more. Something was constantly lacking and, and I wasn't sleeping very well. I wasn't, I was having some, um, some sleep disturbances. And so I would take up drinking periodically. If I, if I could just have a, a binge for a night or two, every six or eight months, I was solid and I could manage my drinking. And as life went on and things went rougher, that became my go-to solution. And eventually um, I lost the businesses and I, I ended up losing that career and I ended up burning a lot of people around me. And I just, that, that, that void in me, I just didn't feel like other people. And I just kept feeling like something was missing. Uh, and I felt that my whole life. I always, even when as a child, I just felt different than people, but there was a pattern occurring. And at some point, I don't know where that point is. I, I started losing control of my drinking. The binges became closer and closer together. And, um, if for, for my spare time, um, I would skydive, you know, and that's how I was able to blow off steam and, and get a sense of, of peace. You know, people want to do that once in their life. For me, it was the only way I could calm down was by being in these high intensity situations. And, uh, I would started drinking more and more, uh, when I was, uh, skydiving, which was, uh, which is a, a sport that has a high recreational drug and alcohol use. I'll, I'll just say that. 
And so it was it was a good fit for me, because if you do crazy things, just like in the military, people excuse crazy behavior. And the reality is I knew I was crazy. But like I heard this thing later on in AA and somewhere in the big book where it talks about um, healthy people will change their behavior to match their goals. The alcoholic will change their goals to match their behavior. So I wanted to be crazy and I didn't really want to change. And I wanted to keep living life on my terms the way I wanted. So I had to do some crazy things and develop a reputation for being crazy. And I, I got pretty good at it. And um, I was we were out skydiving with a, with a brother and, and some friends and a friend of ours ended up getting killed. And um, I just remember going back out there and thinking, Oh, I, I need to have a drink. And I was getting on a binge about every six or eight weeks at this point. And after I came back from the memorial service and helping the family and doing what we need to do out there, I remember just thinking, I got to have a drink. And I think I started in the airport on the way home and I was not sober day or night for five months. And I want to clarify something like I have trauma. I have childhood. I have military trauma. It does not make me an alcoholic. If I removed all this trauma I would still be an alcoholic. The behaviors were there since I was a kid. It's it's like a disorder. I, I truly feel like I was born with it. The, the trauma, the post-traumatic stress, that's an injury. That's something I acquired in life, right? But And the trauma didn't make me an alcoholic, but it sure as the hell for me accelerated my bottom. I want to emphasize that really strongly. So I'm 30 or 31. I was going to retire by the age of 30 was my goal for my entire 20s. And um, I was going to retire by the age of 30. And like a month before my 30th birthday, I, I moved in with my girlfriend's parents and was renting a room. And I was broke. I was bankrupt physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and financially. And again, it was just the world wronging me. And my ideas were, I wasn't out of ideas yet. So I just, and and I, I and that, I kept trying. And, and that drunk I had probably lasted five or six months. And um, I remember, I remember reaching out to my brother, not because he was my brother. He was 14 years sober, but he was another veteran and he was a warrior. And I knew he'd give me a, a no bullshit assessment. And I called him up and I'd spent about three or four hours in this tub. And I, I knew, I knew that I, I didn't want to drink that night and I was going to get drunk. I, I didn't realize it, but I had lost the power of choice in drunk drinking. Like I was like, I had the mind of a chronic alcoholic at this point. I don't know where it was. It's like, for me, it's like, I used to drive to LA at night and I wouldn't know where Kalinga is, which is like the halfway point. You, you just smell a bunch of cow poop like that. Like they're like, I wouldn't pay attention to the signs. I'm like, I wonder where Kalinga is. And then I just smell the poop like that for me is that line of alcoholism. I don't know where that line was. I just knew where it was when I crossed it. And once I went past it, it was too late. I lost the power of choice in drinking. And I, and I reviewed everything I had done. And, and it's, it's kind of like the list they read today. You know, I changed brands. I, I only drank at these times or I wouldn't drink around these people. And, and no matter all my best efforts, I felt like, like I have a 16 month old kid, right? He's like learning. He's really sweet and really, uh, really awkward, but he's really adorable. And he's like learning to walk and he's practicing. But like, if he tried to fight like a 30 year old karate master, he would get his ass kicked. And that's what I felt like alcoholism was like every effort I tried. It just, it beat me down. Like, like I was a little kid. And so I called my brother up and I was like, dude, I, and, and I don't know why, but there is something about one alcoholic for me talking to another alcoholic. I had complete trust and confidence in this man. He had been living this program and there was something that gave him a sense of integrity. And I just blurted it out. Couldn't tell my doctor. I couldn't tell other people, but I could trust somebody, a, another alcoholic. And I just said, I can't stop drinking. And he just, I don't even know if he paused. He just said, well, that's not normal. And I don't, to this day, I don't know why that's so funny, but we just broke out laughing. And he would tell me what, like, he'd say, well, you know, here was my experience. He didn't call me an alcoholic. He just said, here's my experience. And then I'd be like, well, I tried this and this. And he'd be like, well, that's not normal. And it was just literally five minutes of him just going, that's not normal. 
And and towards the end of this phone call, he basically said normal people don't um, don't need uh, don't question how much they drink. Um, they don't need to drink. They don't need to do these types of behaviors. They didn't need to do these things. And that's where the first time I connected that maybe my drinking wasn't normal. I mean, my wife would have half a glass of wine and she leaves it on the counter. I don't know how she does that. She sees me drink half a glass of wine or, or a couple of beers and I would get into that sweet spot. She couldn't understand why I didn't stop. Like she makes no sense to me and I make no sense to her. She's a normal person and I'm an alcoholic. And, and so my brother said, hey, have you ever thought about going to AA? And I knew nothing about this, but I knew it was full of losers because I'm pretty sure that's what I said to him was, was, isn't that full of losers? And, you know, I'm 30, I'm physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and financially bankrupt. And my first impression of AA is to judge the living shit out of everybody and not look at myself. And that... It's not uncommon, apparently, uh, but that, that was my my little embarrassment. So I, I, I he talks me into going to a meeting and I go to a meeting and I want to emphasize this. I did some really cool, macho, amazing stuff in the military and in my 20s. I, I have 200 skydives and 500 scoot dives. And I'm not telling you that to impress you, I'm to impress, but to impress upon you. Like I had a very different lifestyle. The woman that was speaking at my first AA meeting was a soccer mom who hit a box of wine in her minivan with three daughters, and she she got a fender bender in the parking lot at her daughter's soccer game. Like her lifestyle could not be more different than mine. And I, I think at the beginning of the meeting, they asked if there's newcomers, and it was suggested I announce. And I said, "Hi, I'm Matt," and I don't know where it came from. I just said, "I'm an alcoholic," and I broke out crying. And I was able to contain it until the speaker started talking. When she talked about alcohol, I had nothing in common with this woman, nothing. But everything she said about alcohol, the progression of the disease and how it got worse and how it it, it just kept taking her down. And, and every time she set a new boundary, I'm not going to do this. And then she'd be violating it. And I remember like two weeks before I was like, had all this pain and suffering and humiliation. My wife asking me in a blackout as a blackout drinker saying, do you know what you did last night? And um, I didn't. You know, I didn't. I'd wake up that next morning and I had that look on they had their look on that face, and I wouldn't have any memory. And I think, oh shit. My wife would look at me and say, Do you know what you did last night? And being a good alcoholic, I looked right at her and lied. I was like, Hell yeah, I did. And then I try to like like flesh out flesh it out of her. But it, they talked about the incomprehensible demoralization and how it just constantly is getting worse and worse. And suddenly, in a moment of clarity in that bathtub, I realized like I, I didn't I didn't know how to put words to it, but I lost the power of choice and drink. And, and here these people were in this room, they're able to laugh. They, and they talk about alcohol. Being an alcoholic, again, I'm just a drunk at this point, but being an alcoholic, I viewed and seen the world, and, and my, my perspective of the world was very, my perception was very different. And these people understood that perception. So I really believed they drank like I did, because they knew all the, the nuances of drinking and using. And, uh, and I believed them. And they were talking about shit I would take to the grave. I like like I they're like stuff they were up there talking about like in a room full of strangers. I was like, bro, you need to you need to bury that one deep, you know. And it, and it didn't dawn on me the way I was doing things, um, the way I was doing things was was keeping me drunk and loaded. And I could not connect that the action that, that the sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous who worked the steps, the actions they were taking were keeping them sober. You know, I just there's a little piece of me that's like I'm I'm a genius you know don't you know who i am and what i've done and how much money i've made you know the, ignore all the stuff i don't want you to see like the fact that i was broke you know uh that, that one hurt but i didn't want you to see that i wanted you to selectively judge me on a few of my successes and ignore the ones i didn't want you to see or better yet just judge me on my intentions and the world was judging me by my actions and my actions had a pretty lousy track record. And when I drank, I drank, so I wouldn't see those. But I, I, I was going to this AA meeting, and, and I, I started hearing things. Um, 
you know, a guy, a guy speaks up and he says, you know, I, the first time I came to in Santa Rita, which is the jail. And I, and I thought, holy shit, that's not normal. I've come to in Santa Rita, you know, and then, and then they start talking about alcohol. And I probably judged him because he had, he'd done it like four times. I'm like, well, at least I'm better than that guy. You know, no, it turns out I'm just a drunk. I'm not, I'm not better. I'm not worse. I'm, I'm, I'm just an alcoholic. And I started hearing things like I started realizing I had alcohol related incidents in service. They told me, and it's been pretty much the same message for the last 17 and a half years in AA. Um, go to meetings, don't drink between meetings, uh, get a sponsor, uh, work the steps of that sponsor, get a big book and read it. That's pretty much the, the instructions and it hasn't changed. It's still what I do today. So I, I, like I was pretty alcohol fogged from five, six months of straight drinking. So what I did is I just um, picked a dude with white hair because I figured if he lived to be long enough to have white hair, he had to be pretty smart. And so that's my first sponsor, Rogers out of Castro Valley. And um, Rogers took me into his home and he started taking me through the steps and he started taking me through the steps. And on the first step, he, he explained to me somebody, well, he, him and somebody else explained to me after my first meeting, the, the illness model of alcoholics and arms, that alcoholics, we're not heavy drinkers. We're not moderate drinkers. We're not problem drinkers. Alcoholics are bodily and mentally different. And he explained to me the doctor's opinion, which is in the preface in our book. And it's nine pages. And it talks about how an alcoholic has two components, a body and a mind issue. And this illness, the physical component is this physical allergy that once I put booze in my system, boom, it kicks off this phenomena of craving. Like when I get stung by a bee, um, I, my hand swells up really big. I look like, it looks like Popeye. Right. And then the second component is a mental component, which is the, it, that obsession that gets me to take that first drink. You know, no matter how much. Um, you know, I've been at a few fights and, and, you know, getting your ass beat hurts. I've never craved getting my ass beat for any reason, like night after night after night. Like I've never joined fight clubs after fight clubs, no matter how much it caused me harm. But I would forget that pain, that suffering, the humiliation, the big book talks about of a day, a week or a month ago. And, and I would go right back to drinking or that time I was in my car and I'm like, I'm not going to drink. And then like four minutes later, I'm in the car driving the liquor store and I punched the steering wheel and I just didn't know what happened. I had sworn off booze completely. Like I'd just been humiliated and I was on my way to the liquor store and I didn't understand it. And the truth is I didn't know, but I was, I was trying to overcome um, this obsession, which I, which I lost the power of choice and drink at this point in my life. And so long story short, he said, and by the way, the, the mental component, the obsession, I'm a, I'm a beekeeper. I keep bees for fun. It's like a form of therapy. I'm allergic to them. That's like super alcoholic, you know, the insanely sick mind, but it, it's like, I have an allergy, but I keep bees, whatever. Anyway. So, but these two, if he explained to me these illnesses, this physical and this mental component, because I thought it was physical, but not mental. He says, if you understand um, this illness, you are effed. You, you don't have a choice on whether you drink again. That mental obsession will get me to take the first drink, no matter how much I know about myself, no matter how many meetings I go to. And, and, it, and frankly, it really upset me because he, like, I was really full of hope. Those first few meetings, there's a ton of laughter in AA. There's people telling you they're the most important person in the room. People telling you to keep coming back, which I thought was a positive thing all the time. You know, they must love my brilliance. Um, but in actuality, what was happening was um, he, it just it seemed really depressing that telling me that I was screwed and I didn't have a choice on whether I drink again. Um, and I said, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? He goes, focus on what you do have power which is the steps, work the steps. Step two, now this man's Christian. He has me in my his house. I'm a foul mouth military dude. Like I said some profanities about a particular religion and this man just took it all in stride. He said, that's okay. So it's, a, it's a, something to the extent like they, they talk about in 12 and 12, it's a big wide door. It may be a lot bigger than you think. 
And uh, I was in a meeting one night and I was, I was, we did the uh, prayer at the end of the meeting. We're all holding hands and I had been judging everybody in the meeting and they had been drunk driving and doing all this crazy stuff when they were drinking. And I thought most of these people should be dead. And it dawned on me when I would drink, I would black out and I would come to the next day on the airplane. I wouldn't know who packed my chute. And the last few times I couldn't remember how to tie my chest strap, which kept me in the rig. It's a very important piece of skydiving. And at the end I was like, let's just get this over with. Like I didn't even care anymore. I didn't, I didn't really want to be here anymore. And so I just jumped and, and uh, turns out, um, spoiler alert, I lived. Uh, but I realized like statistically, I did that multiple times. I should be dead. And so should most of the people in this room. I went back to my sponsor and I'm like, bro, I think, I think I'm, I'm, I think I might have step two because, uh, and he goes, are you willing to believe in a power greater than you? That's not you. And I said, yes. And then I'm like, but I don't know who it is or what it's capable, what its name is. He goes, I don't care. You just got to have a higher power and it better work. And so he's like, let's move on to step three. And so uh, we had a, a, some misunderstandings on that one. And he was having me read the big book when we, before we sat down. So we'd read the big book and we'd sit down. And then on the third step, made a decision to turn our will over lives over the care of God as we understood him. He said, hey, do you know what that means? I was like, hell yeah, I totally get it. And he said, what does it mean? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, it means that we're turning over our thoughts and our actions. And there was another thing that he pointed out to me about the third step. The third step, based on me going to the meetings, I had to have faith in that on that third step, that if I went in and I looked at, and I did this moral inventory, I did a fear, a resentment, and a sex inventory, sex conduct inventory. And I looked at the things that I was deep down drinking to avoid that I would be relieved from. And I had put off that, that four step for a few months and I just didn't have faith that it would be removed. And, and I realized uh, through the help of my sponsor, what my higher power was, it was the sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no faith in God. There was a day in the service I was doing some uh, pretty difficult work. And I remember stepping outside and bumming a cigarette, and I wasn't a smoker at the time. And I just remember thinking, there is no God. There's no God that would allow this shit to happen in the world. So I was absolutely convinced there was no God, or at least I was telling myself that. But I had faith, and I was in desperate shape. I was in pain. I had an illness that was going to kill me, and I believed him on that. This disease was going to kill me. And I wasn't drinking like other people. There was something different about me. And if I kept drinking, it was going to destroy everything in my life. And uh, if I was lucky, it would kill me quickly. Worst case, it would be I would end up killing somebody in a drunk driving accident and have that on that, my head for the rest of my life. So I needed to take the leap. And, and when it got painful enough, and, and if, you, if you were new and you're listening to this right now and you feel broken, good for you. It's the only way I would do something different is if I was absolutely broken, decimated, humiliated. And, and, and honestly, I, I would say it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. And so I started out on the fourth step. And what I learned about the fourth step is like, I have a lot of macho manly shit in the military. Again, leaving, excluding a lot of details on that um, because this is recorded and all that turned out to be when I did my fearless, the deep seated thing was I was afraid you'd all find out that I was afraid that I was a scared little boy. I watched my mother die. I watched some horrible things, but deep down, as my friend Brian would say, um, my fear of ridicule was stronger than my fear of dying, doing dumb shit, dumb and dangerous shit. <laughs> and I love that because it's just truly honest because deep down, that's what was driving me. Even though I do these macho manly things, I was driven by fear and I started to see that that four step my my sponsor explained to me has nothing to do with anybody else. 
this is this is what was killing me. And it was the things that were bothering me. And the first time I did it, I wrote down everything I thought bothered me. I got no relief. And I had a lot of trauma. So the next time as I started to open up my emotions, um, I could feel what bothered me. And that's where I started to get the relief. I need to say this because it, I almost drove me out of AA. I had a lot of trauma. In AA, trauma for me is not a character defect. And I have to say this because it almost drove me out of the rooms. Everybody has depression of some kind. Some people are bummed that they don't have their favorite flavor of Baskin Robbins ice cream. That's depressing. That's sad. For me, I, I could give a shit on whether I lived or died. I saw no value in the world. And I and I was coming from an intense place of pain. And I was alone. And I was an alcoholic, untreated. And for me, a lot of people are able to just use AA to get through their trauma. And for me, I could not. I needed outside resources. And I cannot emphasize that enough. I was told time and time again that I was a dry drunk. And I was told, well, I was told I need to do another four-step and um, it came back to the military. The third time my sponsor had me do a four-step about the military, uh, I, 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 I got incredibly angry. I blew up in a restaurant, was uh, cussing and swearing, and, and I was a very, uh, you know, my dragon had kind of come out. You know, that piece of me that I, I kept hidden from a lot of people. And that piece of me had come out. And there was physiological responses that made me unable to respond. So for me, again, I needed to seek outside treatment related to anxiety and depression around trauma. Uh, there is a fantastic book that helped me a ton with the four step. It's written by Ernest Kurtz. It's a little red pamphlet, 37 pages. Get on Amazon, you can get off silkworth.net, but it's called Shame and Guilt. And it explained to me that that shame is I'm a bad person, guilt is I did a bad thing. Steps four, five, six, and seven help me deal with shame. And oftentimes trauma will produce shame. And, and if it's really severe trauma, the shame is not attached to the trauma. So I just had it like my whole life. I just lie and guess what caused it. I didn't know why I was in a lot of pain. I could figure out who I was mad at since I was a kid, my third grade teacher and all that shit. And, I, and there was only a few things that were making me drink, but I was so terrified if I didn't get them all down and be thorough that I would drink. And that was the only way I was willing to do it. So that's why I say if you're new and you're miserable and you feel broken and you're, you're desperate, good for you. Because those are the people I usually see make it this program at long-term sobriety. So with that said, I did the four-step I don't mind. I didn't mind doing the ninth step. That didn't scare me. The fifth step terrified me because I, I thought once you knew what a piece of crap I was and you heard what I had done, you were going to go, well, the, yeah, everybody else is fine, but you're, you're really terrible. I've been in trouble before, so I know how to own my crap. Eight and nine didn't scare me, but, but telling another human being some of those things um, broke me. It broke me. And I eventually was able to do the military piece with another veteran um, that I met from a PTSD clinic at the VA, uh, John Jones who passed away, I guess, about 10 years ago. And uh, what I learned in the process of the fifth step was that I was not the monster. I wasn't cold-hearted. I wasn't evil. I was just, I did bad things when I was sick. And I was really sick. And I was really hurting. Um, step six and seven, I thought were blow-off steps. The more time I have sober, the more I see the value in those steps. Sponsor told me to go home, take the book out, and... Uh, Think about what we'd covered and then um, pray. And I said, well, what if, it, you know, what if I don't feel better? He says, then pray till you do feel better. And I, I still didn't know what was bothering me. My sponsor ended up moving me on. Trauma, again, is not a character defect. I needed additional outside work. Step seven, I, I had it required a high degree of humility. I was used to being humiliated. It sucks. Being an alcoholic, it's humiliating. I try to avoid the pain. 
But I, I found out, like it talks about in the 12 and 12, that if I sought out a little bit of humility, I needed it initially out of necessity so I could get sober and not drink. Um, today I can seek it out and I get the same measure whether I've been humiliated or I'm proactively single now. And, and also in six and seven, I started to see that my character defects. When my character defect, which is usually fear, it's, it, it's, 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 it, it's a version of myself, whether I'm seeing it myself or other people, when it causes me pain, I want that thing gone. Now, when it lets me judge you and feel better, that's the other side of that sword. I want to hang on to that defect. And I got to let both go because I can't have one without the other. I can't have my resentments without my justifiable anger and my drinking that comes with it. I had to let both go. And that that is, and but for anybody listening, I, I'm terrible at this. Like I, like I did step one pretty decent, but like this is a lot of years of sobriety. And, and constantly practicing these steps that have made it easier. And I still got a long way to go. And let me be clear. I didn't get rid of any of those defects. I didn't get myself sober. And I should have said at this beginning of the talk, if anything you hear from me conflicts with this big book, then, then disregard what I'm saying. This big book was written. It's called the books called Alcoholics Anonymous, written by the first hundred sober members of Alcoholics and it, Anonymous. And it documents how they got sober and stayed sober. Because I quit drinking a ton. Most of us have. And I, and it's staying stopped that was the real problem. Me and to live sober is a lot harder than I realized till I try to quit drinking. And <laughs> so so then we we hit step eight, made a list of all persons I harmed. Um, this is where I started dealing with guilt. A friend of mine, Dick Hall, who I, I absolutely love and adore you, Dick. If you ever hear this someday, I, I thank you for your friendship, both in this program and out. I, I love you like a brother. I really mean that. Um point something out he goes you know if i ran over your mailbox i owe you a new mailbox so i got drunk at a party and fell and broken your your coffee table i owe you a new coffee table so there was a lot of things there was a lot of shame that had come back up on this ninth step eight and nine where i didn't really see uh clearly what the harm was done and i had to go back through and rerun it through step four through seven to see that it was shame and see what the events are and interestingly enough when i called my brother and i said hey man i, I i'm gonna i'm gonna get uh drunk tonight like you can't stop drinking and he told me that's not normal the last thing i said to him before i hung up is hey i'm not gonna have to, gonna have to apologize to my old man am i my father and um he just said it's not like that he says an amends is not an apology nobody wants to hear another word-filled apology from an alcoholic you know and he didn't call me an alcoholic he was referencing his experience he says you know what they want to see is this is this behavior that's improved and, and amends means change and so I was able to make some living amends to the people that I, I couldn't do. Uh, now, today, when somebody really treats me poorly, I recognize this is how I treated other people. You know, and I got to give them a little bit of grace, like it talks about in the sick man's prayer. And um, and I got to give them a little grace. I don't like how, it, how their symptoms impact me, just like I spilled out my symptoms on other people. Step 10 is continue to take personal inventory. And when I was wrong, promptly admitted it. Um, Again, I needed outside help with that one. Most of the people I respected in this program had done some therapy. And uh, 11, I, I was terrible on, on meditation in as much as it was focused. The old like 1912 uh, definition from one of the dictionaries is uh, generals meditate on war. Like they, they focus, they plan their day around how to stay sober. And that's the version I took because I thought meditation meant solely we sat cross-legged and said, oh, um, but I do pray. I start the day off with prayer. And throughout the day, if something really disturbs me, I pray right there on the spot. And I remember asking my sponsor, well, what do I do? And he's like, pray. And I'm like, well, what if I don't feel better? He's like, keep praying till you feel better. And then go back to your day. 
And then like three minutes later, I'd be pissed off again. So I'd have to pray and it works. I do it. I don't like it. I still don't like it, but it, it works. Um, step 12 is, is a three-parter and it's probably the most profound. Um, I'm going to read it to you how my sponsor read it to me from the spiritual appendix. He said, having had a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism as the result of these steps. In other words, I'll have a personality change, spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience, a slower, fast, total change of, of personality um, as the result of working these steps. We try to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. He wanted me to work with others. He wanted to be a bee of service. And, and that's where I'm going to, I, I see I got a five minute warning. So I'm going to wrap up what it's like today. 17 and a half years ago, I would have said this, the worst thing in the world that could have happened to me was being an alcoholic. It is absolutely the best thing. It's, it's not just saved my life. It's given me a life worth living. And I can't emphasize that enough in seeing another alcoholic who's suffering. This is, this is a disease that kills people. And this message that I'm supposed to carry is going to meetings is, is not enough. Uh, going to meetings and doing what I wanted to do, which is how I did AA the first few months, is not going to keep you sober. At least it didn't for me. When I work the steps, the steps are what help me deal with sobriety. Because I can take, today I don't have to um, take food, fighting, fornicating, retail therapy or shopping, uh, anger. I don't have to take anything and abuse it to change the way I feel. Um, and, and that's emotional sobriety. I came here because I wanted to get physically sober and dry out so I could learn to drink like a normal person is ultimately what I was hoping for. Today, I don't have to abuse anything to get sober. Today, I, I was able to start being honest with my doctors. And it's not that I lied to them on purpose. I was just as honest with them as I was myself. And I was constantly lying to myself. And I drank because I liked the way it made me feel. But I'd make up reasons you know, because people did this or didn't do this. I mean, when I started getting honest with myself, I could be honest with my doctors and I could get honest in treatment. And I was able to get treatment. Today, I have home groups. I have sponsees. I still have, I still work with my sponsor. Um, I have a different sponsor now. Um, but I get to give back and I have a life that's worth living. I'm 48 years old. I have a 16-month-old son. Um, my life is not, it's not what I expected, but it's, it's amazing. The, the the woman that was causing me to drink and causing me most of my problems, turns out she was not my problem. Um, <laughs> I'm married to her now. Uh, she is the mother of my child and my wife and my life partner. And I, I'm not perfect, neither is she, but I have tools today where I can work with her. A part of my living amends to her was, so we had a kid. We did IVF and we had this wonderful, amazing kid. My life today, um, I have injuries from the military. I, I receive a... Um, I, I'm able to get the medical care that I need today. And I was recognized for my injury several years ago. I could not have done any of this without Alcoholics Anonymous or the people in it. I want to emphasize this enough. I hated, I thought I was a militant atheist when I came in. Um, at least I wanted to be. I did not get myself sober. And there was no way around that for me. If I could have found another way or stayed sober without with skipping step two, I would have. But the reality is I was able to find a power greater than me, which was this group of alcoholics, this group of drunks who knew infinitely more about staying sober than me. There was a lot more time in those rooms than I ever had. And eventually, I, I, like my sponsor pointed out in step two, I just needed a willingness. I had to listen to my sponsor. I found that every time the steps became really difficult, it's because I wasn't listening. He would tell me to do column A, then B, then C, then D, you know, 
do one, then move to the next. And I would just do them straight across and be like, I'm miserable and crazy. And he'd be like, because you're not listening. The steps aren't that difficult. What I found today is most things that drive me is fear. I can sit here and I can see those sober members of alcoholics talking about their problems. I've seen a guy who came into a meeting um, who lost his wife and his daughter to a drunk driver. And the first thing his sponsor and his sponsor brothers did was take him to a meeting. I've seen people come in, multiple people come in with a cancer diagnosis. Um, three and a half months ago, I died. I had a heart attack and I died. I got defibrillated twice in front of my house and I had uh, a stent put in my heart. First thing I did was two or three hours after I went to um, my old home group, my original home group, which was the late show in Oakland. I went to the late show online. And, you know, and if you told me, if you told me anything that, that I, when I died, I had an experience and I was talking to that same brother who's he's 31 years sober now. And I got 17 years of my middle brother. Um, I believe he has 12 years. And I'm, I'm super proud of all of them. I have a relationship with him today, but it, it, I was able to see that in dying, like, you know, I was okay. I was okay. I'll just, I'll leave it that because I don't have the time to go into any details. But if you had told me that I was going to die three and a half months ago and I could be at peace, I've had a great life. The best part of my life has been the, the part that's sober. And when I came in these rooms, I was just a drunk. And I thank God I stayed around and I became an alcoholic. And if you're an alcoholic like me or any of the real alcoholics in this room, I really encourage you to work the steps. It absolutely has worked for millions of people. You, I wanted to try to find my own way, and I've seen plenty of people do it. I hope they're sober. I don't usually see them come back. But this way does work, and I did not like, just like it says in the big book written 80-some years ago, I didn't like the ego leveling, the pride leveling, the 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 display of my character defects. But today, I don't have a drinking problem. I haven't thought about drinking in years. If I want to have a drinking problem, I can get one real fast. There's a 7-Eleven like five minutes from me. I wouldn't trade what I have today for anything. I'm emotionally sober to the best of my ability. I'm not perfect. I can get my wife in here and she'd probably validate that one real quick. Uh, but it, uh, it it's a better life than I could imagine. If I had written a list, and I'll just leave off this last thing. If I could have written a list of what I could have had in a sober life when I came through these doors, I would have cheated myself. It probably would have been something like, you know, like real vain shit, like threesomes with supermodels or something like that, right? But in actuality... I have a family. I have a life. I have friends in this room that showed up today to support me. Most people didn't want to talk to me or anything to do with me. And just the privilege of being able to show up to the best of my ability for friends and have people in this program, it is one of the second greatest honors of my life. So if you're new and you're in pain, good for you. It gets better. You just got to get through it. And we just, this is what we do together. When my sponsor told me, you think I wanted to do a four step? He didn't. I didn't either. And I'm sure the next guy in this room ready to write a four step doesn't want to either, but that's what we do. We work the steps. So if you're new, they'll tell you to keep coming back. I'm just going to ask you to stay. And with that, thank you for the privilege, Laura and Dean and Richard. Thank you all for your service and I'll shut the hell up.